and welcome back to another episode of Green Jeans. I am your one host, Annika Van Rossum. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm joined by my other co-host. Maya Van Rossum, also using the pronouns she, her, and wish I was actually wearing green jeans, but I haven't gotten them yet. (laughs) FYI. We might start a fashion line, but if you haven't joined us before, we are a podcast that talks about important environmental and social justice issues from a generational lens. I am a budding activist and my mom is a lifelong activist, or at least has been doing it many more years than I have. I know I'm, I'm like, have a funny look on my face because I don't think she gets to be called a budding activist anymore, seeing as she started her activism in school, but we'll still go with that. I don't know what to say, man. I don't know how else to describe it. I don't know how to be like, I've been, like, we could numberize it. I've been doing activism for 22 years and my mom's been doing it for a number of years. No, you haven't been doing that because you have to think about what age you were in elementary school when you started. It was approximately, well, yeah. Okay, we're not going to go down that. Yeah, so (laughs) anyways. Anyway, fact check time. Yeah, so also, if you haven't joined us, we always do a weekly fact check or most most weekly fact check because <laughs> sometimes we forget, but that's okay. So mom, what's our fact check for the week? So I decided to take a look at what the Environmental Protection Agency has to share with us about electric vehicles. Um, and so I'm bringing a fact check from the EPA. And I wanted to do this because, you know, when I was talking with Dave, my husband, your bonus dad, previous guest teacher on the show, um, you know, and saying, what would be a good fact check? And he, you know, he reminded me that people are constantly challenging the value and importance of um, electric vehicles in addressing the climate crisis. And we hear all sorts of false arguments about electric vehicles and people, really the opposition, trying to rationalize how and why they should be able to continue to um, use their their gas guzzling vehicle. Maybe it's not a gas guzzler, but if it's consuming gas, it's guzzling gas, so there you go. So anyway, so took a look at what the EPA has to say. And you know, one of the things that we do here is that Um, When you compare gas vehicles with electric vehicles and their consumption of the power, that um, electric vehicles have the same carbon footprint as gas vehicles because of the emissions and the ramifications of the extraction of the um, energy fuel from the earth. Now, let me be very, very, very clear. I oppose fracking and I oppose frack shale gas, natural gas, nothing really natural about it. Um, Getting it out of the earth is a highly industrial process that has very serious ramifications. Um, So wanna be very clear about that. But when um, we are looking at the, the, the vehicles themselves, And we acknowledge and recognize that the power generation that comes from power plants, most often these days, continues to be power that's generated from fracked gas, from coal, from fossil fuels, okay? And so even though when you look at that, when you look at the the footprint of of electric vehicles recognizing much of that energy is created by fossil fuels versus gasoline cars consuming a fossil fuel, which is gasoline. Still, 
still, still, still, electric vehicles are demonstrably better for the environment and for the climate crisis. Um, and their carbon footprint is dramatically worse. And, dramatically worse, dramatically better. The carbon footprint of gas vehicles is dramatically worse. The carbon footprint of electric vehicles is dramatically better. Now, exactly the difference is gonna depend a little bit on how that energy is created. But writ large across the board, you are doing better for the climate if you buy and utilize an electric vehicle. And you are doing even better for the climate if you're powering that electric vehicle with clean energy sources like solar panels, like wind turbines, which as you know, Annika, our electric vehicle here at our house is actually powered by because mm -hmm. we have solar panels on our roof and we have an all electric house and we have geothermal in the ground to help with heating. For cooling, we use fans. So we don't really use it for the cooling, but it would be there for the cooling if we wanted it to be. And so when you think about you know, what, what, what we're driving around, it's even dramatically better for the earth. And as we create more and more clean energy options for electricity generation, then people who are um, buying and using electric cars are going to be doing better and better for the environment, for the climate crisis, and for future generations. So electric vehicles, good. Yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, I just... Um, so yeah, honestly, like, I don't have anything to add to it. I mean, like, yeah, you're right. And in fact, I did want to remind people that we did a really great episode with Karen Faridan talking about um, a company called Nacero, um, which is, you know, a peddling another false climate, climate crisis solution, where they're actually talking about doing, you know, all the ills of the world, extracting fracked gas from the earth and then turning it into gasoline that people will burn in their um, gasoline powered vehicles as a way to perpetuate both gasoline powered vehicles and fracking. So um, for anybody who didn't, you know, hasn't been following us for a while, go back and look for that episode, Karen Faridan, uh, uh, Better Path Coalition and the Nacero um, false climate solution show. That's a really interesting one and just shows you how the industry really continues to try to dupe the people in order to pe perpetuate their dirty fossil fuel footprint. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's just the problem with a lot of this stuff is always too, like when you see, if anyone's seen like those natural gas commercials, I don't know what they are now, but I remember there's one in college and it was like really trying to hit your dopamine with all the like flashy images and it was like clean, science bed 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 and it's like just goes you know at the end I remember watching and being like oh man this look I thought it was gonna be like some cool clean energy thing and then it's just like natural gas and I audibly gasped I'm pretty sure I had like a soda in my mouth and did like a spit take or something because I was like oh my god this is such a lie it is such a lie and then of course they do things too like they put up their their um their billboards and they say that you know we need fracked gas because the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow and of course forgetting that the sun is always shining somewhere the wind is always blowing somewhere else there are lots of clean and renewable energy options and technologies that are emerging all the time there is um uh increased bar bar battery 
storage options that are increasing. Um, their energy efficiency is a clean and renewable energy option to reduce our, our footprint. So all the way around, right? As you said, they just they just peddle these the, these false narratives in their commercials on TV, on the radio, on the billboards, and it's really disturbing. And so that's why I just wanted to touch, um, you know, touch a little bit. I'll probably do future fact checks on clean energy cars because they're important. It's an important thing that people can do when you're going to buy a new car. Consider that electric vehicle option. Um, I have found it highly, highly rewarding and successful, and I have no problem going anywhere I want to in my electric vehicle. There you go. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so we're going to have on shortly, Michael Yadrick, Yadrick, if I say it wrong, he'll correct it when he hops on. Um, but Michael does the Tree Hugger podcast, which is really great. Mom, you've been on it before. And he just talks about all sorts of cool topics, like Green Amendment. That's my favorite episode. Um, but all these different kind of like plant topics, biodiversity. Um, I don't even know. You just have to look like the titles are so cool on all the episodes. So I think for anybody that's just kind of immersing themselves into environmental activism, into a tree hugger lifestyle, into just trying to figure these things out. I definitely go recommend he has an Instagram. He has um, go to treehuggerpod.com and that's where you'll see his podcast and we'll link it in the description. Um, but yeah, that is our guest for the day. And make sure you get the website right, treehuggerpod.com. Don't just go to treehugger.com because it'll take you to the wrong place. Hi, Michael. Hello. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm all right. Hi, Maya. Hi. Good to see you again. The tables have turned. You again, I know. <laughs> we always, so we do like a little quick primer of our guests before they get on, but we never want to shortchange people because guests always have really interesting ways they describe themselves and things to say. So if you wanted to give yourself your own little hype up, your own little intro, go for it. <laughs> I'm not used to being on the other side. I'm so grateful for the invitation. My name is Michael Yadrick Jr. Um, I'm a professional tree hugger. I think we'll talk about that later on. But I am, uh, let me see how do I introduce myself. I'm a son to Michael and Nancy. I was born in Seattle, um, husband to Rena. And um, yeah, I'm also father of 11 year old named Miles. Um, we have uh, we have two dogs, a new puppy just joined us like a week and a half ago. Um, so Hazel joined Lucky. So that's our family. We live in uh, Tacoma, um, aka Grit City, um, Washington, which is um, on the ancestral homelands of the Puyallup people as well as the Stillicum tribe. But I am uh, calling you. I'm zooming in today to you from Seattle. I'm actually at work. You can see my mess. I think you can see the mess of my office behind me. So um, I'm calling in from Seattle where I work as a, uh, I trade my labor for a paycheck at the city of Seattle um, Parks and Recreation Department as one of the plant ecologists and I support Green Seattle Partnership, which is um, an effort to restore the forested parks in the city of Seattle. Oh, I'm really going to, cool. I'm actually going to physical therapy a little later. So I you know it's very much on the forefront of my mind. I'm an injured mountain runner. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. What is a mountain runner? Yeah. We <laughs> weren't actually going to start there, but now oh, we're okay. <laughs> gotta, gotta ask that. That sounds I really mean, hard. I mean, for years, um, probably 
pre right before my son was born probably going back to my time i, I lived where did i start running started running in graduate school i guess and just as a way to like run off steam and then um yeah and then when i we moved back i guess when i moved to california i moved i was living in southern california for a while i was working for palos verdes peninsula land conservancy and i lived um yeah in these kind of rolling hills of south los angeles and that's where i really picked up trail running and then um, subsequently when we moved back to the, the salish sea puget sound area yeah, I just started running like crazy. Um, and I run like I started running like longer and longer distances, like beyond the marathon. And then mostly up in there's beautiful foothills in the mountains here. Just really great spots. And yeah, as a way to uh, it would always like clear my mind and it was good for my body until it wasn't until my hand until I just kept it's so logical just to keep running on an injured hamstring for years. <laughs> Well, that is crazy. I've never, I guess I, so I go to law school in Vermont. So I see people like run into the mountains. I'm just like, they're crazy people. Like I yeah, can't even like, run. Like, are they coming back? Who knows? Yeah, <laughs> some of them, most of them come back. We don't talk about the ones that don't. Um, but I feel like that's, so you said you're a professional tree hugger. So what, yeah. you know, that's like your podcast name. So what does that, what does that mean? What is a professional tree hugger? Well, it was a kind of a moniker. Is that the correct term? Yeah, it's kind of given to me by my dad. So I was saying we, um, I spend uh, a good amount of time with my dad, um, but he, my mom pretty much raised me. And so, um, and then we're very much closely in touch. We're actually closer now than we were when I was really growing up, I guess. But he, um, yeah, I work as a plant ecologist for the last 11 years at, you know, City of Seattle. Before that, I was like a conservation director or something at, a, at some land trusts, you know, so I had these different like professional titles, career titles, and, and he never quite knew what I did. <laughs> like, as you all, you're like a family of attorneys, right? Like, you kind of know what's, what's, what each other are doing, right? But my dad is... Um, he never is quite figured he's I think he's he almost got it figured out but sometimes he's just generally like um you know I'm a I'm sort of an environmentalist and he knows he's like and he gives me sends me information a lot of times about like solar energy and like composting toilets and electric vehicles and all this stuff he's like you're into this right I'm like no not well kind of but not really like tangentially mm -hmm. but he's like mostly I'm a plant person like a people person, but I like plants and things like that. So that's basically where it came from. Cause you know, I think I love the name of your, I get, I think I get it. The name of your y'all's podcast, right? I, that's funny. Yeah, I was, sure. no, it, it was sense. a long time trying to figure out what did, we were going to do. Did it? I know. So, um, but tree hugger, cause there is like, I think there's probably, there may be other like variations on the name tree hugger and podcasts out there, but that's what I went with. Um, but, you know, and I know that you all and it means kind of something to me because I'm into trees, um, but I think it is one of these things that it is used in sort of a like a kidding fashion or a derogatory fashion a lot of the times or mm -hmm. kind of offhandedly we may refer to ourselves as tree huggers. I think Annika, I listened to a couple episodes I heard you I heard you say it once. Yeah. I don't know if you remember. I'm a tree hugger. But, I'm like, yeah. yeah. And it's one of these things like I think you just kind of. Um, I don't 
take it as a slight anymore. I can't. It's one of those things like people probably don't say to your face a lot of the time. But yeah, well, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is, I think that for a long time, it was used, just like you said, as a disparaging remark. And I think that um, people like you and us sort of don't view it as a disparaging remark and have gone to, you know, just taken the word back. Because I mean, Annika and I literally, like since she was a little girl, when we would, you know, walk down to the shop together, sometimes I would just feel a tree talking and we give the tree a kiss and we give the tree a hug and, you know, it's a good thing. I feel like I make right. a thing out of it. I did on Valentine's Day or like anytime there's like these Instagram trends or like post like the love of your life or post the one that means most to you. I have a cache of photos. Like I make a point of getting photos of me hugging trees and that's just what I post. Right. And I'm just like, this is it, man. And I love it. And you can like, yeah, I have people in like national parks I've gone to clearly like staring, like, what are you doing? And I kind of wish almost like, Sometimes I do it obviously for the bit, like, yeah, people call me a tree hugger is an insult, but it's actually like very calming and it's very like good for you. It is good for you. It probably, I think the energy resonates at the, like the Schuerman resonance, you know, of the <laughs> earth. I think it's gotta be good for you. Uh, there's no, there's no, it can't be bad for you, I guess. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, but it does have some history and I think, um, you all uh, kind of going back. I am 45. So I was born in 1976. I think in the May, it's kind of difference. I see a lot of different things written about it, but I, you've actually, I should probably do an episode on this now because there is some, uh, the origins of the term are kind of born from the Chipko movement in India, right? So in the, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, there's different um, things written about it, but maybe 1973, I listened to, I actually do a little podcast research. And so I heard an, an interview with Vandana Shiva and she talked about, she was actually part of the Chipko movement in India. I didn't realize, but she's one of my heroes. Wow. And um, she talks about seven, in 1973 was like one of the official movements or, or um, where uh, the certain area in, in the Himalaya, there were in this post-colonial period of India, there was a lot of changes in the economy and a lot of the men had left the rural villages to go to the cities to work, right? And so, um, but also there's a lot of industry going on, like roads were being built out to the frontier to um, have this, like kind of um, secure the frontier with China. And that opened up a lot of resources extraction out of those rural areas. And so there was logging going on and just classic sort of enclosure of the commons extension from um, England, like the history in England, Mm -hmm. enclosure where rural villages lose their rights, their historical like rights to the forest to use Mm -hmm. it. And the state essentially takes it over. And so um, in the same in, in same era, essentially the, the villagers, you know, they had to petition the state to use the forest for something, to harvest for like tools, um, fire, you know, fuel wood, et cetera. They were denied, but shortly thereafter, some sort of um, industry was granted rights to the timber for, of all things like tennis rackets, I guess. So like tennis rackets, you know, all these things um, that, you know, wood is used for. Um, and uh, and essentially they had, and so there was only women in these villages, very nonviolent. 
and they took up the way they protected the trees was with their bodies. And so the chipko means mm. to hug or to cling to in Hindi. And so that is what they did in order to protect the trees. So, you know, in that sort of Gandhian nonviolence, but they were women, right? They're just, um, it's basically, you know, their livelihood, it holds the soil, it, it provides all these valuable, valuable things that aren't just the textbook values that we read about for trees. So it's very beautiful. But it even, I don't know if you, have, this is a long story, long no, story this short. No, very cool. interesting. Okay. Yeah. So that, so you do need to movement, do a show on this, by the way. I do. Yeah. I'm going <laughs> to dig into it some more. But um, yeah, and I hope I'm being coherent about it too, because, but it, mm -hmm. it grew from that really. And so, and then the guys got involved. And uh, one of the gentlemen that was sort of the, the leader, I, he like really popularized it, but however, it was his wife's idea. They said, they're like, it's his <laughs> wife's idea, um, popularized it. And it really became like a movement in, in um, India against, yeah, just excessive logging, even anti-dam, the anti-dam movement. So, you know, the dam, a lot of dam construction happened in like, I don't know, 70s, 80s ish that era and so yeah chipco and i think it's still going to a certain extent however it is um yeah my obviously my i, I don't know if y'all i think we're gonna do video but audio i don't know if you all yeah. can tell like i'm generally like a white guy but um yeah so i do feel like i've sort of co because i know the history i feel like i'm sort of co-opting the term that's not for my my ancestry or my cultural traditions um However, my wife is half Indian. I feel like it's it's, it's been interesting to tell her about the the history of it a little bit. Um, well, she's and you a little got bit removed it. from that. Yeah, but it also sounds yeah. like before all that beautiful history. And by the way, I don't know if you can see all my Indian gods oh, and nice. goddesses in the back. So I was born in India. So also really? like you. Yeah. So, but very white like you. Um, but I do feel like while it's beautiful that you looked into that history, you know, you, you got your chops legitimately because you're your own version of a tree hugger, right? You're planting trees, you're loving trees and you're loving nature. And it was given it to you by your dad. So, yep. right. Yeah, so that's legit. That's right. Yeah, I did unpack it a little bit with uh, Vivek Shandas on an episode. I don't know a year who I don't know what year this is a while back. So we did this episode on urban heat islands and about minute I listened to it. Yeah, I recapped it a little bit yesterday at like minute 10. We talk about it because, um, yeah, his family, that's where his, his family's from India, I think in southern India. And um, we talked about it a little bit. And actually, he talked. It's funny. I don't know if anyone wants to go back to that episode, but he talks about his his dad has a name for him as well, which is like <laughs> totally like vague and ambiguous. Doesn't really have to do with what he. No, he does now, that's fascinating. Yeah, 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 but that's fascinating. And that is, we do want people to go listen to your podcast because it's so cool. The 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 diversity of shows that you have and mm -hmm. the way you get people to dig in on issues is just fascinating. And that's a really good episode. Yeah, and I appreciate it. Honestly, I listen I re-listened to our episode too, Maya, and um I do prepare. I went on a deep dive, I feel like I'm with out of my comfort zone, I think, and just some research about our our rights and constitutionality and you taught me some things and actually you've sort of um 
cultivate i've sort of cultivated my mistrust of government to a certain extent because of you maybe like you've driven me more towards like my anarchist tend tendencies i think so well welcome like, welcome, oh to, and you welcome to our side of the of the line <laughs> yeah great i remember i do remember i want to um though i will be a little vulnerable here when i was editing i did um i cry every once in a while like when i'm editing because people say such like gorgeous things and i remember i think it was the cold intro that i did with you maybe um at the beginning of the episode you said something it's just like so i could just imagine you like i don't know outside like just yell you know like or um you know uh just like doing your activist thing and like with a wind in your hair and just like you know screaming these words or whatever that's so but, nice so, of you to say well yeah. i appreciate that i do i do i do so, well, so how do you, so, you know, when you were talking about, um, about, well, what is it, you know, on your, I don't think you called yourself this today, but you describe yourself as a certified ecological restoration practitioner. Yes. What is that? What is Besides that? Besides so being that... a like certified tree hugger. <laughs> no, that is right. Yeah. Professional tree hugger is like, um, yeah, and it's not a cert. Yeah, it's not a real certification. It's like street cred, I guess, more than anything. Maybe, Which is the best I don't know. cred? Yeah. So, um, certified ecological restoration practitioner. I've only had that title for like uh, maybe at most two years. So it's a new certification program that was created by the Society for Ecological Restoration, and so that is one of my professional affiliations. It's kind of like my my practical sort of academic home, I guess. So the society um, was created in 1988 to sort of help define or cult, uh, shape the new field of ecological restoration. And um, uh, yeah, I actually did an episode with Bethany Walder, who's the ex current executive director, again, a while back in the Wayback Machine. And yeah, there's like 3000 members. So not a, t not a lot of people over like in like 70 countries around the world. So it is like a very much a, and I would say 65, 70% of the members are in North America and the rest are, yeah, spread across, spread across the world. So it is like, it's a, it's an evolving sort of multicultural institution. One of the things, Michael, that just, you know, seeing, you know, listening to your podcast and seeing the kinds of things that you write about and you talk about that you have a really, um, beautiful focus, maybe not entirely, but you know, that, that a part of your focus really is the urban areas and bringing natural landscapes and trees into the urban community, which seems to cover sort of all your buckets that you just talked about, environmental justice, climate disruption, right? Everything. And so just wondering, you know, if you want to talk a little bit about what you actually do in terms of, you know, why, why do you focus on the urban area? Why is that important? Right. Yeah, I would say first and foremost, it's my it's my ecosystem, right? So I'm an urban dweller. <laughs> like I've really always, you know, I was born in Seattle. I grew up in Federal Way, which is just south of us, um, and uh, which was pretty rural when we moved there. But kind of quickly, as I grew up, became suburban, like a very major suburb of, of Seattle. And then uh, again, I went to college. At, I went to the Evergreen State College in Olympia, and that was like a little more rural. 
but except for my time really in in Latin America, when I spent time as a, I'm a return Peace Corps volunteer from Bolivia, and then also spent some time in graduate school in Costa Rica and Guatemala. Except, aside from those times in Latin America, I pretty much have always lived in urban areas. So um, yeah, so for me, and um, yeah, I just I've gravitate towards urban areas, and I, I for some reason I have this romantic idea that someday I will live in Vermont, not Vermont. I probably won't live. I probably always stay West Coast, but um, yeah, some mountains and because I yeah I do like the mountains. Like I imagine I just want to run out my door and go up the mountain or jump in the lake or whatever. But um, Again, I think most of us are urban. Most of the world is urban, right? So I feel like it's, um, yeah, nature just isn't out there in the mountains I can see from the city. It's, uh, yeah, nature is sort of all around us. Um, and, you know, who kind of reinforced that with me? There was an early episode I did with Ju Julia Plevin talking about forest bathing. And that, that episode started, I picked up, a, I sort of like, knew about forest bathing i didn't know what it was but we were on a vacation in los angeles and we went to this gift shop and her book was just sitting there kind of like um sitting like couched between like kind of these statues that are hot behind maya they're like you know like that sort of bookstore um like just a lot of different things like eclectic variety of of things you could purchase there but her book was there and we were, had this flight back to seattle so i just i bought it and started reading it and I was like well I have a podcast you know and I'm in this position now where I feel like it's an it's a very much a good excuse to reach out to people and uh, it gives me this positionality that I have now and the power I just um, I can just reach out to people and be like hey you want a conversation instead of just being some rando you know that emails that kind of lurks around and creeps around <laughs> and um tries to want to talk to people. I was like, I'm like legit, add some legitimacy, I guess, to my um, my hobby. So I, I don't know if I answer your question, but yeah, I do think urban, urban the urban ecology is important because um, yeah, the urban areas can be kind of a drain and can be somewhat degrading to our ecosystems and damaging to our ecosystems. Um, for example, um, yeah, just think about the the orca populations here in the Puget Sound, and I I don't know if we talked about whales, Maya, but talking about the river keeper bay keeper um, concept when we chatted last time. But you know what's important to what's the charismatic fauna that we see here in uh, in the Puget Sound. I'm pointing this way because the water's over here. Um, yeah, I like the salmon. You know, I've been here since time immemorial, and the and the orcas. And for example, and sometimes there, the resident populations of orcas are suffering because of what we do on the land. So you know, how we treat the land, it also affects the waters and things we can't see underwater. And so, and always having lived, uh, not always, but kind of mostly of my life living around water, it's uh, the health of the Puget Sound is very important, even though we don't spend much time in it or on it. A lot of people don't spend much time in it or on it. So I hope that answers your question. Well, and I think one of the cool things, just what you're talking about too, with um, your conversation about urban environments and like, yeah, this, we don't see, we don't see what's under the water, which I think is like just such a great metaphor in general for the environmental movement and like activists, like we're kind of almost 
dunking our heads under the water to like tell everybody else on the surface like hey you guys might want to check this out because it's not good um but what has it been like with the people that you've gotten to talk to and your different guests and I guess like one of the things we're always talking about is how um last week we had a guest on Byron Riggins talking about how like learning about nature and being involved in nature has had such an impact on his life and for other people too and if like maybe from your guests or the conversations you've had as you've been on this tree hugger podcast journey like what you've kind of taken from people that are getting those benefits from nature and maybe also the detriment for people that aren't able to get that yeah yeah I really hope um I really hope that conversations are sort of reciprocal and the relationships sometimes it's like I could have never have seen Maya again really you know it's like sometimes it's just like very brief we have the conversation and then we just go our separate ways but I do hope I don't know some of these people I have so much I have like very fond memories of of some of these folks and I hope I've learned a lot from them and sometimes I do feel like um I have just like received so much love and so much they've informed me so much about um how I should um, reorient my how I view the world and how I perform my practice of restoration really so I would say um, and even the future guests like I have some, oh, some great people coming on I think the next few months but just thinking back to um, you know a few months back like Candice Fujikane who's a um, who's a professor at University of Hawaii um, and she wrote this book called Mapping Abundance and just talking about how what capitalism has done to us and like kind of just parcelize the world, like really mm -hmm. starting with enclosure, um, you know, parcelize the world and made us um, kind of wage, you know, certainly like wage slaves to a certain extent and just how, um, you know, we just keep chopping things up into smaller and smaller pieces, like subdividing things. And then all of a sudden the that little piece that you that is really part of a larger landscape like isn't really it loses some value I mean it's like it creates surplus for someone probably not us but um but it divides like watersheds and whatnot so just thinking about um but out when you look out there and like when I go into an urban forest um it has been quote unquote kind of damaged you know in my in my viewpoint to a certain extent but um it really does and even when it's covered in like quote unquote weeds like it is still like it's it made me switch my thinking a, a lot more just thinking about this area is abundant i mean it's green it is abundant like there there are some like some threats like kind of as we define things from what the western scientific perspective but like things are growing you know and even in deserts so and then looking back at the um the episode like one of the earlier episodes um we talk about biocrust ecology in the desert um and i lived and i've always been pretty much lived around forests but you know actually when i was in the peace corps in bolivia we lived in this kind of mid higher elevation like it was really kind of a very arid area in the desert so i kind of came to appreciate the desert and deserts you know people use these terms like food deserts or whatever but people have like lived in the desert for like eons you know and so you think of a desert as like place that's like not abundant but when in reality there's just there's so much life and sometimes it is under you can't you don't you're not seeing it because you're not tuned in 
to 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 you know what's there so because you have different values yeah that's a really great observation and i hadn't thought about it that way right about how people think about terms and then as you said it's all about your about your perspective do you think when you when you do your restoration work or even just you know um or others are doing it in the urban area do you how quickly do you think people start to experience, and I'm thinking particularly of children, but really it's everybody. How quickly do you think people start to experience the positive values that come from bringing trees and life back into an urban area? And do they realize, like when do they realize intellectually versus emotionally that something has changed in not just their landscape, but their lifescape because of the addition of, these plantings or this restoration project that you've, you've, you know, helped marshal and bring forth? Mm-hmm. Hmm. I mean, I think people recognize, like, there's this recognition, I think, um, around town anyway, through, through my experience at the city of Seattle, like, anything green is good. It's like, really, like people, like you fly, I don't know if I think of flying, because uh, I don't know if anyone has the privilege of flying into Seattle SeaTac Airport or something. You fly, you know. A lot of times you get this. If you can look down on things like um, this, is, or if you look at Google, I guess, like look at the landscape imagery on Google. I, and I, this is the way I think about the world. Sometimes I fly. I don't know where you all are, but I like fly there in my brain and like go in like a Google map. So like I don't know if you're in New Mexico or wherever. I'm like flying there. And uh, but SeaTac, you know, this area is fairly well forested, right? And you, I mean, quickly, the footprint. There's like um, six million people that live between um, Thurston County and Snoqualmie, uh, or the um, Snohomish County, in this like megalopolis, I guess, of around Puget Sound. So it's a good amount of people, and it's fairly gray. Actually, you can see. I don't know if y'all can see this. It's <laughs> uh, uh, you can see like um this is a poster i have all this like weird stuff from my office but you can see like how uh was it the way puget sound was in 1972 and the black is like i don't know if you can see this can you really see this the black is like the the urban area that sort of impervious surfaces and the green is forest and then in 1996 when um there was an urban forest canopy analysis done you can see how much it had grown by the late 90s. And then you think now we're like, I don't know what third, I can't do math, 30 years later or whatever. And um, and how different, um, how much the, 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 the impervious surface has grown, how much forest canopy we've lost. So um, yeah, so I think, yeah, green, so green is good regardless of what kind of plant it is. But trees, um, you know, our program, we was created seven, we're in year 17. And the whole, you can really think of the origin of Green Seattle Partnership anyway, was all about kind of decreasing the sort of threats and always like maintaining canopy, like like planting more trees, maintaining forests because um, it's like our lifestyle. It's our culture, um, you know, where the Pacific Northwest is home to like, you know, the biggest and you know, some of the best trees really in my mind. And so like big Douglas firs and like big Western red cedars and why not have them in the city? So, and so 
subsequently to all these, you know, this urban forest canopy analysis, like, like pretty much the natural areas, the greens, you know, the kind of wilder places in the city are still largely forested. Like some trees, some trees are older and they fall down, but um, we have, we're very fortunate to have been blessed with some public funding as well as some leveraging some grant, you know, private monies in order to keep it going. And it is one of the, I'd say one of the more robust or, or bigger urban forestry programs in the in the United States, I would say. Other country, other cities do it well too. And we're sort of loosely networked, but um, yeah, I think kids like, and then so we have tried to create this culture of, of stewardship and like pre-COVID, like almost any given day, you can find an event to like go hang out at. So in some ways, like it doesn't require, the program is set up so it doesn't require me to be there leading an event. Like I'm just sort of the, this term is antiquated, but I'm sort of like, more like in some ways I'm kind of like a quarterback like I'm here like like <laughs> I don't know supporting. if you can use come on you cannot use like, like brain know. damaging quarterback terminology with I know. healthy I'm trees like, yeah I know I'm like <laughs> that's Russell my Wilson. biases in there I'm Russell Wilson I'm sort of scrambling around <laughs> like supporting people and we just support people with um tools like the like the one thing is like people need tools uh they need a place they need a place obviously they need tools they need some materials um like plants and then they just they know what to do like they don't like is they don't need me there with my certification you know to tell them what's up because people um i mean there's always things to learn um and i'm learning continuously but they do it themselves right so and that's a cool part of um the model that we have created. There's definitely some flaws to it, um, but it is, it's somewhat beautiful. But yeah, that's the thing. I think in the urban areas, the values, besides like the textbook values, it's the value nearby nature. A lot of times it is just a trail and, um, you know, getting into it. So if that, if that trail is covered or is creepy, you know, the difference between like I'm uh, like I said, older white guy likes to run the mountains like I can creep through any weird urban forest like I feel totally comfortable <laughs> but most people like you look at a, a trail that's really narrow like just a single track you call it single track that's people that's not really accessible for a lot of other people so you just we'd make it a little wider four feet narrow and then just keep a lot of just manage sort of the vegetation so it's not just present and like you don't have to sometimes you don't have to duck and that makes it so much more walkable for people but the other thing about the territory here in Seattle is like there's water um, the topography is very sharp in some cases so there's a lot of like staircases or trails through the parkland that allows people to live their lives like they can walk to transit they can walk to school otherwise if they don't cut through the park they gotta walk like you know a mile around mm -hmm. on the sidewalks or no sidewalks right so those are some of the different things that the way um, that comes into our mind the way we um, our relationship with forest in the urban areas that might not be something that um, another restorationist really kind of comes on their radar out in the more rural areas. I think that's so cool and I think that's like so many things that people just don't think about like people don't think about even just how when you look at a trail like yeah if it's not 
a certain width if it's not well kept for many people that like maybe that creates an issue that I just don't think I don't think everybody thinks about and I definitely I don't think sometimes like even as environmentalists like we necessarily think about that because we're just like oh nature let's go like I don't understand why not everybody else is like let's go but sometimes it does require a little bit of extra zhuzhing if you will yeah yeah. I was at a um I was giving a talk somewhere and there were different panels and the panel before me it was this very um it was um somebody talking about the physically disabled and their access to natural areas and it was a combination of of how many limitations there are and it doesn't and it's not just being in a wheelchair right it can be that there are all kinds of physical limitations that people have that can make nature not accessible and then on the flip side you know i've i've I um we were battling against a quarry expansion and it was going to destroy a forest and this forest was the the one place where this um this mother brought in her quadriplegic son and this was the forest where she would take her son and there was access and he would just like bathe in nature and this was this was his special natural space that this quarry was going to be allowed to destroy and so it wasn't just destroying the forest, but it was destroying this one person's access, her son's access to the natural world. And he had so many limitations as it was. And just how how um, how just devastating that was going to be for him. So I do, I think that this issue, as you said, access for the physically abled and the idea of being able to walk through rather than having to walk around and that that's so important but yeah there are there are so many other kinds of people in our world and making sure we think about them and giving them access to is just um irreplaceably important mm-hmm. yeah and i think it is it's important to listen to other people right because i could be like you know and my mistakes of mine taking responsibility and really being accountable like Five, five or 10 years ago, um, you know, be like, this trail's fine, you know, this trail's fine, but really being able to really listening to people, because obviously, um, there's, uh, I mean, I tag team my partners or, you know, a couple doors down the trails program. And that's like, they have these standards and the standards sort of exist for certain, you know, reasons. So people can like get, there's like called the window of the forest, right? So we walk through kind of safely feeling secure, um, and cause a lot of, yeah, a lot of folks, um, in urban areas too, um, yeah, they just feel like I could probably maybe feel a little more disquiet, like walking through an alley, you know, and like the scary things that exist there at night when it's dark and that's my thing, but someone else, yeah, walking through the forest could get that same sort of like, um, that psychological trigger that yeah it's time to run or not go that way because it looks yeah it looks the way it does so um and did people especially from different cultures that are new here as immigrants or refugees have fled here you know i think it's uh it can be important their their relationship with this type of forest is different from where they came from and so there are there's just a lot of listening to do honestly and so it's not just physical i think we talk about physical access and not to bring this back to my hamstring but i'm still like quite physically like capable right like i'm able-bodied but um 
yeah, there's physical access, being able to get into the space, but there's also like different forms of access that I think are important in kind of political ecology. They talk about like social access or like um, political access, right? So people um, like our volunteers, let's say, like as the landowner, as the municipality, as the bureaucracy, we sort of have the ultimate sort of um, ownership and right, and you're, I'm going to use these attorney words, you can correct me, but like we have like kind of dominion over like the park system, like the 5,000 acres or whatever. And we sort of, there's some rules that people engage with like in the in the urban forested parks and some things are not allowed right so like after hours like drinking you know partying in the woods is frowned upon um i had a meeting just last night about a new park and um, this new park is kind of waiting for a project to happen and it's in this urban creek and um some home um people who are experiencing homelessness have set up camps there um, so it's actually not just one camp, not just one person, but it's like a, it's a community of, of homeless folks that are living there. And that's, and so that is like physically they're accessing the area, but a lot of the neighbors don't want anything to do with it. Right. So, and we talk about, um, you know, as we talk about environmental justice and kind of who's most marginalized within our community, um, yeah, it's one of those things I think in Seattle, many urban areas are, 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 um, are going through it. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why it's happening. But um, a lot of some people, if they're not the if they're not housed, like if there's housing insecurity, some people are living in our forests. And um, it, there's a lot of tension right now. And um, and we think about I think about that access and then what we value in our urban forests and um i can totally see the necessity for someone who uh and i think the article forests are very pleasant like if i didn't have a house forests are somewhat of a you know safe haven i think for some people but it is um uh it's very disquieting for a lot of the neighbors because they think it is unsafe and um there were like 70 people at this meeting and probably like 60 of them stayed later just to talk about the how the homelessness crisis in the city in this very microcosm of this one little baby park did and, they uh, want to yeah. can i'm just curious did they the 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 most of the people that came up to comment was the was the thought process to continue to make space in the park for the homeless or was the thought no, process to most move of the time no, most of the times, like people just, um, I think most of my, I don't want to, I want to generalize or stereotype, but yeah, most people just don't want to see it and don't want to really, uh, they just want the city essentially to just deal with it. And I think that means for it to go away, right? So when we think about these, you know, frontline communities, you know, fence line communities, I think, um, I also generally consider, I don't have, I feel like I don't have much control over it because I mostly just responsible for weeds and trees, <laughs> you know, in my job, mm -hmm. but it, um, it sort of, it is, un it unsettles me and I don't know how to always navigate it, but it is, um, yeah, it's something that um, we'll have to confront as a, as a community, as communities as moving forward. Yeah. It's, it is 
I mean, it's so sad and challenging that you have to deal with that and are going to have to figure it out. But on the flip side, there's something beautiful about the fact that when these people had nowhere else to go, they came to the, they came to the urban forests. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely people camping in, in the margins. It's like just the margins of our cities and too. And so like in the most, I think, uncomfortable places too. And like, but um, they do, a lot of people tend to like sleep outdoors on their own, but yeah, they tend to kind of group, come together in communities. And so I think there's some wonderful things that some other municipalities are doing um, to provide to continue to provide services and also try to get people into more stable situations. Um, but it's a, I don't know, there's a, it's a huge issue. I just think it's, it's sad too, just like speaking to homelessness and stuff and people advocating that, you know, they wouldn't want homeless people in the park. And it's not like for a, I don't want homeless people in the park because then I can't enjoy the nature. It's like this, it's this unsightly thing, you know, and I think we, like, we have the issue with, in our yard because it's native plants and it's not a manicured lawn people are like well we don't like it because it's not pretty and it's people but people also don't think about that the the nature that they want the way to look isn't actually taking care of nature it's hurting it and I find so much unfortunate synergy between people that don't care for their fellow human also don't seem to care for the environment and I like, it's just, and I think that's a perfect example of like, people aren't really, those people aren't caring for the nature who are like advocating to remove the homeless people. And like, yeah, it's this, it's a place that they found that's safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And especially in these times, there's lots of things we could talk. This could be a whole discussion. I know this is like, about, it's... yeah, how, I didn't expect it to go this way, but it's just my recent experience, like last night. But it's beautiful. Yeah. Just you're talking about you're talking about how you work so hard to find different ways to think about and make the urban forest accessible to people. I think it's just a, a it's a it's a fascinating subject, but I think it's beautiful. It's how your brain works, yeah. which is yeah, like right. even more cool. Yeah, and historically too, you know, you look at our like origin story, and a lot of times it's like we do this for like the birds and the wildlife and all these things, and there is there is that. Like there's, you know, people that think like the parks are just for the, like, and that's sometimes where the funding comes from. And there's like very bullet points when you apply for, you know, state monies, it's like, you know, there can be no buildings here. There can only be certain things like this is not for a playground. These are not for um, kind of active restoration. This is, you know, supposed to be like habitat. So because we've lost so much, which is like valid. And so there are like coyotes and bald eagles and um, what did we see yesterday? Yeah, toeys and um, yeah, they're holding hands and yeah, hopefully, you know, in the in the forest. But yeah, the people component, What's the urban toey? areas definitely. What do you mean? Oh, a toey is like ha- a, holding hands. A bird, yeah, toey. Toey. I saw like bird because birds are coming back, like migrating in. So we're yeah. seeing new birds at the bird feeders and whatnot. So I saw, I was on a site visit yesterday and it's like, there's like a little, just a new bird all of a sudden we had seen for a while toey i don't know i'm a plant person my i don't know it's like a um brownish reddish body and like a black head i don't know and it was holding hands with another no, i was like oh okay uh, I, I make this joke about bald eagles holding hands with orcas <laughs> <laughs> 
like that's like the stuff that wins monies so you can acquire so you can do like <laughs> conservation projects you like make paint like paint this like pretty picture of like of harmony and like charismatic fauna and everything so sorry that came out sideways no 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 that's fascinating though again it just shows how your brain works which is like way cool no understand cool. the jokes <laughs> So now, you mentioned the salmon earlier and you were talking about, you know, the Native American communities and I actually tying it all back together. I wonder if you know that there's a, there is actually now a Washington Green Amendment proposal by Representative Deb Lacanoff, right? She's a Native American, speaks so beautifully and powerfully about the salmon and the his, you know, their history with Native American cultures and how sad it is you know, their current status. And then um, her compliment on the Senate side is Senator Mona Das, which is also like an okay. off the charts powerhouse of a woman. So didn't know if you've ever encountered either of them, but they're both no. like amazing women, okay. you know, in your in your state. And they're, they're the ones advancing the New Mexico Green Amendment. And then we have- Washington our, Green right. Amendment. The Washington Green Amendment, sorry. And then, um, and David Kipnis with, um, 350 Seattle is our um, our leadership partner um, in advancing okay. the Green Amendment in that state. So I didn't know if you had that on your radar, but I wanted to put it on your radar because I did not really know. powerful really, voices. I mean, I do lurk around your social media, so like I know I knew you had a podcast, and um, I didn't think I was going to be a guest. Uh, but then um, I didn't know about <laughs> these things. But I feel like New Mexico has been really like your your pride and joy and where you've been supporting you know, like, no, seems well, like much more advanced right was that yeah that it's well right? the thing is is it is what so what happened in new mexico is new mexico had just this 30-day window and so it was very intense engagement for 30 days that's when their legislature was in session mm. um and then it's sort of like different states happen at different times and in washington state there was the proposal and there was a hearing but you know, we knew strategically that this was probably going to be a longer, a longer-lived process, and so you know there was great engagement uh, around the time. But it was much more short-lived because it was really around the time of this hearing. But now we're going to be gearing up for next year with our legislative champions and our and our leaders. So, but that's cool that you noticed that New Mexico is up there. New Hawaii mm -hmm. is very hot right now. New Jersey's getting very hot right now and Delaware State's getting hot. And Maine is super hot too. Hot, okay. Super hot. Good to know, good to know. <laughs> in a, yeah, in a good the... way, not a climate crisis kind of way. <laughs> I mean, it is hot, but it's hot. Uh, <laughs> that's so, cool. Yeah, I'll look up these. I'll look up these folks. Deb yeah, I mean, they Mona. would be like Representative Lakanoff and Senator Daz, man, and you know, just powerhouse legislative leaders okay. that you have there. In yeah, Washington I'll put some State. pressure. I'll put some pressure on my legislators. My coach, I didn't see that. I didn't see their names. Yeah, but I, I can, and I can name. happily connect you up too okay. like if you yeah. if you're interested because because uh like i said representative lakanoff when she talks about she's native american herself she comes from alaska yeah, yeah. and um you know so she and i think she's she's the only current native american leader in the state legislature and she's only the second yeah. ever to have served in the legislature so she also just has a fascinating personal story as well as her incredible dedication to environmental restoration and protection, which is really off the charts powerful. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I hope that sounds great. Yeah, I did. I'm not familiar with her. And um, yeah, I'll look her up. Maybe she'll be on the podcast. That would do wonders for my podcast. <laughs> there you go. Well, so it feels like this is like a good, we always like to do, I always say about our podcast, like as we end, we talk about, we talk about heavy hitting stuff. Sometimes the topics are lighter, sometimes they're heavier, but we always think it's important because the environmental message sometimes can be very like down and depressing on people, but we're always like, if you found this episode sad, then you need to get inspired. So I feel like Michael with your podcast, you know, help us close out here with how you maybe would say like, what are in your own journey or whatever the takeaways of how people can be inspired to be, we always say like, be an activist in your own right. Mm -hmm. And so any, Mm -hmm. any parting thoughts you have? yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't, I, um, yeah, I totally appreciate the the opportunity yeah, to give people hope. I do feel like um, they're living through these like kind of multiple pandemics. Um, we've lived, through, I think we there's a lot of grief out there and I think we're privileged to come back on the other side, I guess, of COVID. I don't know if we're in the middle of COVID, maybe we're at the end of COVID at this point in time, who knows? <laughs> but um and then with the uprisings and racial reckonings, I think it is important to, yeah, kind of get comfortable with people's grief and kind of sit with it. And I think like hope, I, and Leslie Davenport, I think Leslie Davenport, with whom I just finished an episode about talking about eco-anxiety and climate anxiety, talked about like, um, I think it was a quote from perhaps, no, I don't know where it came from, for her saying like, perhaps like hope can come out of just these uncomfortable like feelings and particularly grief. Um, and so hopefully, you know, that, that inspires us to, you know, to make change and listen to each other. Um, and I would say just speaking and just saying that word change, I think getting comfortable with change is very important. Kind of like getting in right relationship with change. I, I did listen to your, I don't know which episode it was. Somebody mentioned um, pleasure activism, like Adrian Marie Brown's book. Oh, it's, I think it's, so we money. did an episode on eco-anxiety yeah. too. Yeah, eco-anxiety, uh, Rachel yeah. Dawn Davis from yeah. Water Spirits. So if you, yeah. I don't, that would be my, if you can, she's my favorite author right now. So I totally um, encourage everyone to re- read emergent strategy or pleasure activism or whatever but yeah she she's like an octavia butler disciple really and just talking about getting in right relationship with change um she has a podcast as well if i can plug like my favorite podcast it's uh her podcast is called she does it with her sister it's called how to survive the end of the world and it's not like it's not like apocalypse like you know machetes and like um you know base you know spike baseball bats like mad max style it's really it's like you know certain cultures certain communities are kind of living through um some sort of apocalyptic conditions right and so there's there's ways that um we need to yeah get in right relationship change and with each other and um, i feel like that's um and people we don't i think to a certain extent we don't like change like you know we often chase comforts and um but building resiliency like doing hard things and that's why i like i'll just bring it back to mountain running that's why i like mountain running in the mountains um and uh and doing some hard things and confronting confronting racism you know or white supremacy where it shows up in my practice of restoration like hard things like that um will help us yeah build I think resiliency and uh, and hopefully bring us together.
Yeah, every day when I have, um, I'm having a difficult time of it in a big way or a little way, I, you know, I do try to think about those people who really are on, on the front lines. And, you know, again, being an environmentalist really on the front lines of suffering from environmental degradation. But I have to say right now too, thinking very much about the people in Ukraine um, and the families that are really being beleaguered and sort of I begin and end every day with thinking about these people with these other struggles, as you said, and it, it does, I, I, it's not to diminish the hard times mm -hmm. anybody's having and not to diminish that for, but for me personally, just to remember that if, you know, if my biggest challenge is that I'm suffering knee pain when I'm trying to do some kind of exercise, man, bummer, but that's, yeah. you know, I get to feel that pain and in a way that's like, um, not, not negative, right? Like I'm alive, yeah. I'm alive and I have a good life where I'm able to exercise. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, anyway, so I hear you and mm -hmm. I just, just, just wanted to give voice to that. That's very Gosh. much on my, on my mind. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, Annika, I'm so sorry. This blew the positive message. Oh, was there other thing? No, oh, was Annika, that not positive? I no, that wasn't. That was I wasn't negative. I blew it. I, I blew it. I was just trying to think of other people. And I, Annika always I, is good about doing the positive. No, I mean, it's good. Like, I don't, I think it's just, it's hard being an environmentalist because it's, and like a tree hugger and like, it's just hard. It's hard. It's hard, but it's like, I can't, I always like tell people like if I have a bad day, I just like live in that bad day and, and like whatever I'm feeling, whatever the reason, whatever it is, you know, I never do that. Like, I don't know what the saying is, but it's like the mud, no matter where the mud hits your legs, it's like tough for anyone to walk through. So it's something like that. So like everybody, like, you know, mm -hmm. people are like, well, my problem's not as bad. And like, yeah, but like it's still hard, and so I'm just yeah, like, I'll live in. I'll live that's in a my good saying. That's what I don't know what it is. It's definitely not the saying, but that's how I remember it. And like okay, I go well, to I bed, like <laughs> I have I my bad probably, day. Yeah, I mean, what I hear you saying, I think it's probably a way you protect yourself, right? It's like yeah. you sort of just sit with it, and um, at some point you're ready to kind of come out. And I think, um, yeah, just having vocabulary, I think expanding our vocabulary as well really helps. Like, I think we're just kind of limited by our words sometimes. So like, um, yeah, somebody calls you a bad name or, you know, or somebody like, uh, I actually listened to your, your all's episode on bullies as well. And I totally, oh, man. Like, <laughs> WTF, like, what do you got? I can't, I you guys are heroes really like trying to still that you're still trucking after like all these like bad behavior that you have to well yeah <laughs> like, and you know what through. it all comes back to just when you're feeling bad go hug a tree because that tree hug will nurture your soul tree. if you're open to it right yeah, there we go yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's the po that's there's right. the, po there that's the positive ending i, will, I, I have some news well i think why i talked yeah. about work is too because i just read this um my my mobile device just pinged me and told me some important information. So this was an article about the last remaining Southern resident orca in captivity will no longer perform at Miami Sea Aquarium. Woohoo! Is it what's gonna? Is it gonna have a good life though, or is it gonna be put in a little swimming pool somewhere? I don't know, but that's, uh, I guess I didn't get to. I didn't fully. I was kind of reading it yeah. off. I was, I was we'll multitasking. Have to look up to that. Orca. Yeah, orca. So, Performing orca, yeah. 
but um yeah this is like the um yeah so she was captured in Penn cove in august 1970 as a young whale and has been performing at seaquarium ever since so she is the sole surviving southern resident of the capture era which killed and which killed a third of the pods so and if you know anything about like populations and communities of orcas and in Puget Sound, they're just, um, they're like incredible living beings, so. Well, that sounds like a yeah. very beautiful <laughs> visual, Michael. I don't know Thank if that was, so I don't know if that much. was positive. No, but the beautiful visual that we're, you know, that, that abusive era is coming to an end yeah. and that people Hopefully. are going to be inspired to listen to your show and go out and hug a tree in your honor. I think that would be a good All thing right. for everybody to do. Hug a tree in the treehuggerpod.com, right? Don't forget the pod at the end, treehuggerpod.com. Um, you know, view of the world and get that positive energy. All right. All right, Michael, thank you for joining us. And we'll have all the links and everything on how people can find you and listen to your awesome podcast in our description and all that great stuff. So everyone can, can get on board with tree hugger pod. All right. We appreciate it. Well, thanks for inviting me on. Yeah. Thank you for all your great work. You're awesome. And get in touch with those Washington Green Amendment people, man. I will. I'm going to look <laughs> I'm going to Google it right now. All right. Take care. Thanks, Michael. Bye-bye. Uh, Bye-bye. Well, that was really cool. What an interesting journey of a discussion. I, I really appreciated that. that. I think it's great. We will link to all of where you can find Michael's podcast. I know on Spotify, I think, because he was saying the names, I think it's Tree Huggers, apostrophe S. Okay. Um, pod for anyone listening. So he's also on Spotify. We'll link to it. We will link to the website, all that great stuff, but that was an awesome episode and yeah, go listen. If there's a myriad of topics, you need to write a paper, you need to catch up on a topic. I think Michael's your go-to source. Yeah, no, and it's really, it's interesting and it's inspiring and it will open up your view of the world. And it was so great to talk to him, right? It's, it's interesting to see mm-hmm. how his mind works and roles and it's always really always seeking for that really positive that learning moment and that positive next step so yeah it was superb to have him great idea Annika um for for connecting up with Michael and it was great to reconnect with him after having done the show with done his show with him you know a while back before we had our show so great work So we're going to close out this episode. And as always, if you want to get involved in the Green Amendment movement, you should go to www.forthegenerations.org. If you would like to see some fun clips from our podcast on Instagram, we're at Green Jeans Pod. We are on Spotify and YouTube as well. All that fun stuff. So go check it out. Donate support and stay inspired, kids. All right. And adults too. Stay inspired and have a great week till Um, our next show. There we go. All right. Until next time. Until next time. 